It was dark. It was loud. It was stormy. It was hell. It was war. Though several miles away from the front lines, his senses were literally bombarded like the fort he saw in front of him. The cries of pain, the smell of death, the taste of sulfur, and the bombs, oh the bombs, the falling bombs which shrieked destruction, tore flesh, dismembered bodies, rained death, crushed Hope. Were we losing? Could we hold our position? Had the enemy prevailed? Surely we were defeated. Soon to be prisoners of a brutal, bloodthirsty army. All must surely be lost. Ten days ago, we celebrated our 203rd anniversary of that faithful night. Frank, as that's how his friends had called him, referred to the war as a lump of wickedness several years prior. However, he had changed when he saw the war and saw how his brothers were killed in battle. In August of 1814, just a month prior, British troops invaded Washington, D.C. and burned the White House, the Capitol building, and the Library of Congress. And now, on this night, September 14, 1814, Francis Scott Key peered through a spyglass, praying for any evidence, any proof, that the fort, or even the city of Baltimore, was still there. He was not a prisoner. He wasn't even in a bunker. In fact, this American was on a British ship. But he wasn't there to be on their side. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer and he was sent to negotiate the release of an American prisoner that was held captive by the British. Negotiations were successful that evening But there was one stipulation to the release. Both Key and his fellow American had to remain on the British ship while the entire army bombed Fort McHenry. After a day, the British were unable to destroy the fort and they gave up. Key was relieved to see the American flag still flying over Fort 
McHenry that night, and he quickly penned a few lines in tribute to what he had witnessed. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we held at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. Listen to this. And the rocket's red glare and the bomb's Burst in air, they gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? Francis Scott Key, sitting on an enemy ship, wrote those words. A 35-year-old Washington lawyer who despised politics, opposed the war, and was known by his family to be tone deaf, sat on an enemy ship and wrote what would later be called the Star-Spangled Banner, and a hundred years later would become the National anthem who would have thought how improbable that Frank Key who was probably better known as Frank Off Key was the one who would write our national anthem the circumstances surrounding what took place then remind me of another story of an unlikely person who would make history for her nation as well. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to Esther chapter 4. We're going to spend just a little bit of time in Esther. You're probably familiar with the story, but real quickly, I want to remind you what has taken place. Do we have a table? Is there a table that's going to pop up, guy? You see, is there a chart on there? It didn't make it. Okay. Uh, I'll give you a recap of what we've been talking about in our classes on Sunday. I'm not going to tell you everything because then you wouldn't feel like it would be necessary to come to class. And I want you to come to class. So I'm just going to give you a dangle the carrot in front of you. Esther comes after Nehemiah in our Bible, but historically, it chronologically, it comes not only before Nehemiah, but even before parts of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 through 6 takes place. Uh, This is when we have Cyrus, the king of Persia. Uh, The Persians are the ones who had overtaken the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the ones who had taken uh, Judah into captivity. Okay, so now the Israel, they are in exile. King Cyrus says, I'm sending a group back so that you can build a temple that is led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Oh, I was going to ask you that question, and I gave away the answer already. Zerubbabel is the one who led the first group of the remnant back to Jerusalem. They would start and begin to build the temple, 
And then at the end of Ezra chapter 6, there's a stop. And we don't know this unless you're, you, you read outside of this. You're going to end 6 and then you're going to start 7. Well, the difference between the end of 6 and the start of 7 is about 58 years. Starting in chapter 7, Ezra is going to return. Okay, and he's gonna, he is going to return and he is going to help uh, renew the, the, the spirituality of the people in Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the temple, the temple was there, but they were still missing something. And Ezra comes in and says, you know what you really need? You need the law. Before Ezra is going to come back though, in this 58 year period, is where we're going to have Esther come into the picture. Uh, Esther uh, is uh, a young Jewish girl, uh, and we're introduced to her in chapter 1. She is young. She is young, young, very, very young. And I'm not going to tell you how young I think she is based on what scholars say. You're going to have to go to class to listen to that one. But she is, she's a young lady, and we open up in chapter 1. We're not going to meet her just yet. But there is uh, the king there. Okay, the king is Artaxerxes. Okay, uh, later on he's going to have uh, a son named Xerxes. Xerxes is going to be the one who um, is going to help Ezra lead the people back for, from the second one. But right now we have Artaxerxes. Um, I'm sorry, I got those confused. Xerxes uh, is going to be the one... Uh, in the story with Esther. His son Artaxerxes is going to be the one who leads him back. Uh, Xerxes, uh, he's king of Persia. He decides to throw a party, a big party, a really big party. How long should a party last? Give me, just throw out a good party. How long should it last? Two hours? Four hours. Oh, wow, four hours. We're doubling. Would anybody like to go long? Would anybody like to host a, a, a party for more than four hours? How about a day? How about a week? How about 180 days? Now that is a party. He has this big party. He invites lots of people. And then at the end of the party, what do you do when you end a 180-day party? You have to you clean up. You have to have another party. So after the hundred, the six-month-long party, he has another party. This one is going to be even bigger and better, though not longer. It's going to be a seven-day party. And while he's at the party, he's hanging out with his buddies. His wife, Queen Vashti, she has a party with the ladies. They've separated him to. The guys are there. They're together. They start imbibing and start drinking. And before long, through his intoxicated stupor, Xerxes says, hey honey, why don't you come out? I want to show you off to all of my buddies. And Queen Vashti says what? No, I'm not going to do that. And Artaxerxes is mad. And he goes to his buddies and he says, what am I going to do to this queen who won't show up? And they sit around like guys do and they talk, which what they shouldn't do, but they talk and they say, you, you got to do something, king, because if you don't, all the people, all the women are going to find out 
that the queen disrespected the king and now all the wives are going to disrespect their husbands. It's going to be all over the place. We got to show them that they need to respect us. And so they said, get her out of your presence and don't ever let her come back in again. And he says, okay. And he does this. Chapter 2 opens up. His anger wears off. The alcohol wears off. And he says, man, my good looking wife is no longer here. What am I going to do? And, and some of his expert advisors who got him in this problem in the first place said hey here's what you need to do you need to have a beauty pageant and he says that's a good idea they have a beauty pageant there's a young lady I'm not saying how old she is but there's a very young lady who stands out above the crowd and her name is no 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 her name is not Esther does anybody know her name I think I heard it. Hadasha. That's her Jewish name. But she's going to take on the Persian name of Esther. And in fact, not only does she change her name, but she hides her nationality because her uncle who adopted her because her parents were killed, probably as they were overtaken when Babylonian comes in or they, were, they died in the exile. I mean, this is a great Disney movie because both the parents are dead. The uncle comes in, he's going to take care of her, and he says, not only is your name going to be Esther, but don't tell anyone you're a Jew. She goes into the palace. She ultimately will become queen. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, we enter in the bad guy. His name is Haman. Haman comes in uh, and he gets uh, lifted up to very high in command, so high that as as he's going around, people bow down to him. Well, most people go, everybody bows down to him except Mordecai. I love that you know this story. This is a great story. Esther, who's the queen, has an uncle who's raised her. His name is Mordecai. He goes back and forth to the palace to check on basically what you would call his daughter, the the young girl that he's raised. And he checks on her. And while he's there, Haman walks by and Mordecai won't bow down to him. Everybody bows down to Haman. Mordecai won't. Some people there in the court say, hey, you probably should bow down to this guy. He's really important. And Mordecai says, no way, I'm not going to do this. So they go and they tell Mordecai because they want to find out if Mordecai is really going to do something. Mordecai gets mad. But he says, I'm not going after Haman. I'm sorry, now I've got really confused. Haman says, I'm not going after Mordecai. That would be too easy. I want to go after who? The whole nation, all the Jews. He says, I want him destroyed. So he goes to the king and he says, hey, King Xerxes, we got a problem here. There's some people who, who are offensive, okay, and they don't uh, follow the laws of the land. And I think they should be killed. And to help you out, I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver to put in the treasury. How much is 10,000 talents? How about 375 tons 
of silver. That's how badly Haman wants Mordecai and the Jews killed. And there's some more storyline behind that, but we're not going to talk about the fact that he's an Agagite. You have to find out in class when you go in just a few minutes. But he's an Agagite. He hates the Jews. He wants them dead. The king says, keep your money, take my ring, use it as a signet to press on the wax so everybody will know this decree. He had, he had rolled this, this dice, this pure this pur, which is going to refer to Purim later on. That's something else we'll talk about in class. They roll the dice and find out that in 12 months, they are going to attack all the Jews. And then we open up with chapter 4, because Mordecai has just learned what has taken place. This is... Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter in it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on him instead of sackcloth. So she's like, hey, uncle, I know something's wrong. Put on clothes. It's okay. It's like when our kids come up and they're bleeding and we say, oh, it's okay. Here's a Band-Aid. Everything's better. And they're still bleeding. And there's still pain. She says, here, take the clothes, stop crying. But he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what, the, what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, to which, uh, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So she sends out her attendant. The attendant goes out to Mordecai. Mordecai says, here, I want you to know this. Here is what is being published throughout uh, the citadel of Susa. Uh, proclaiming that in 12 months that the Jews are going to be wiped out. You need to do something about it. You need to go to the king. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and all the people of royal province, provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in, in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they are to be put to death. The king says, don't come into my court unless you are invited. If you show up in my court, you will die. 
However, I mean, that's the default. The default is you walk in, you die. You walk in, you die. The one exception. The king says, you know what, if you walk in and you haven't been invited, but I don't want you to die, I can raise my gold scepter and then you can live. The only exception is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. And then Esther says this, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She says, I hadn't seen the king in over a month. So something says that I'm not really at the front of his mind and maybe he doesn't really care about me anymore. So if I go in there, there's a good chance that default, I'm going to die. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says, you don't have to do anything. In fact, you can survive. You can stay in the palace and you can survive. But don't think that God won't still save his people. But what if God placed you here to save them? What if you are in this terrible situation so that God can use you in a powerful way? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I think we know the rest of the story, but this is really the important point. God had placed Esther so that she would have an opportunity and reach out and save people who were hurting. She could put on blinders. She could keep going on. She didn't have to reveal to anyone that she was a a Jew. Instead, she could live life out in the palace and let somebody else save the people. I mean, she could easily justify that, can't she? Somebody else can do it. She can justify it just as easily as we justify it every day, right? When we see all that's going on in the world and we get furious and we get mad and sometimes not only do we get mad at the world, sometimes we get mad at God. God, why don't you do something about this? There didn't have to be a hurricane that destroyed the south part of Texas. There didn't have to be an earthquake. There didn't have to be a fire. 
There doesn't have to be another hurricane that went through Florida and another one that's brewing up somewhere else. This doesn't have to happen. God, why? You know what's interesting about the name Esther? You know what the name Esther means? It means a star. We find this type of theology in Philippians. We talked about it several weeks ago when we remembered uh, Jerry Hillard. We talked about this idea of stars. When they shine and when we see them. See, stars, they shine all the time. But we only see them at night. You see... In the book of Esther, you're not going to find the name of God, Elohim or Yahweh, mentioned at all in the ten chapters. In fact, the word pray is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet, all throughout the book, God is working in the story of Esther. And for us, God is working in our lives. The light that blinded the wounded and killed its victims also provided a beacon for the survivors. The hill was still ours. The fort still stood. The flag still waved. Our army would not give up we would prevail. This is the national anthem of the United States. That on the dark night, the worst thing that you could imagine were bombs flying in, but it was the light of the bombs which reminded people that the fort was there and the flag still waved. We have an enemy, a bloodthirsty army that attacks us with lies and spies, with snipers and bombs, with words that wound and tales of no hope. People are dying. Are we losing? Can we hold our position? Has the enemy prevailed? Surely we are defeated. Soon Satan's army will take us prisoners. The angels of death the brutal, bloodthirsty savages. Look to the hill. See the proof. The cross is still there. We will not give up. He will prevail. I want to ask you, I want to challenge you this morning. 
we live in the land of the free, can we really be the home of the brave? Young Esther sent a message back to the father of her life. Her father figure, she said, you know what? Fast for me. And I'm going to go before the king. It's against the law. And if I die, I die. What courage this young woman displayed. It's dark out there. It's bloody. There's anger. There's hatred. People are yelling and screaming. But through all of this, we have an opportunity to say, even at its worst, God is greater and the blood of Jesus still saves this world. May we never forget in our darkest hours that Jesus is still there. May we have the bravery and courage of Esther and may we stand up and show this world about a God, a God of love and mercy and forgiveness and a God of victory. And let's do it as we stand and sing.